Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This month, we pieced together the evolutionary and demographic history of the elusive Atlantic eels and review our understanding of mutation rate modifiers. I'm Jeff Marsh. Now, as is often the case on the Heredity podcast, we tend to tackle the big themes in evolutionary biology, and this next story is no exception. Mutation, as you know, provides the variation for natural selection to work on. But mutation rates themselves are controlled by genes, and as such, can be influenced by natural selection and other evolutionary forces. One peculiarity is that experimental populations in the lab and some pathogenic populations can exhibit very high mutation rates, fixed for alleles which increase it, the so-called mutator alleles. In the wild, however, most organisms tend to show relatively low mutation rates. So how wild populations suppress this high mutation rate remains a bit of a mystery. Yevgeny Reins from Brown University has co-written a review this month on our understanding of the evolution of mutation rate and the experiments that have fed into the discussion. What and he provides some interesting lines of inquiry for future research. The ultimate source of novel genetic variation that is required for evolution. However, the rate at which new mutations appear, you can think of it as a quantitative trait. It's controlled by a number of genes, such as those encoding DNA replication and repair enzymes. These genes that set the genomic mutation rate are themselves subject to mutation. And these mutations in these mutation rate-setting genes then have the potential to change the mutation rate itself. For example, uh, mutations in a polymerase gene that makes it uh, less accurate at copying DNA would increase the mutation rate. So you've co-written a review this month about some of the experiments that have gone towards our understanding of the dynamics of mutation rate modifiers. Tell me about the sort of seminal early experiments in this field. Well, the seminal work in the field was done in the lab of Edward Cox in 1970s in Princeton, who with his collaborators co-propagated populations of E. coli that had a wild-type mutation rate and a high mutation rate and observed that the strains of E. coli that had the high mutation rate were able to spread in their experimental populations and supplant the wild-type competitors if started above a certain threshold frequency. So these results demonstrated that these high-mutating E. coli populations were able to outcompete their wild-type competitors not because of some inherent fitness advantage of the mutator allele itself, but because they were acquiring beneficial mutations at a higher rate. So these experiments, for the first time, really demonstrated the phenomenon of what we now call the mutator hitchhiking, where mutator spreads in association, or basically hitchhikes, with beneficial mutations that appear in its genetic background. What exactly do we mean by the fact that these mutation rate modifiers hitchhike? How do they do that? So we're talking about mutation rate modifiers that 
increase the mutation rate, and as a result, they can acquire fitness-affecting mutations at a higher rate. Some of the mutations that they will acquire will be beneficial to the individual's fitness, and as a result, these mutations will spread by natural selection. Because the modifiers are linked to them genetically, they're in the same genome, the modifiers will also spread in frequency together with these beneficial mutations. So basically, as the beneficial mutations spread to fixation, the modifiers hitchhike with these mutations to fixation as well. Is there any experimental evidence to suggest that these mutators spread in natural populations? Yes. There are some observations of high mutator frequencies in natural populations, uh, mostly including uh, viruses and pathogenic bacteria. There's also evidence of widespread genomic instability in cancer, which also suggests the presence of mutators. But I mean, I guess the big paradox here is that if you look at natural populations of sexual and asexual uh, populations, we just don't see these high mutation rates. We don't see populations fixed for these mutation rate modifiers. That's right. And that's the theme of our review. Despite our observations of mutated hitchhiking in lab and observations of high mutation rates in some natural populations like those of pathogenic bacteria, generally speaking, mutation rates in nature are low. And we aim to address the discrepancy between natural populations and experimental results. Now, just referring to your review here, one one obvious answer might be a recombination as, as a way that would break down the linkage disequilibrium of hitchhiking. As I discussed before, mutators increase in frequency by hitchhiking with beneficial mutations, and recombination tends to separate mutators from beneficial mutations and thus potentially inhibiting its hitchhiking. It's interesting to point out that most natural populations may engage in recombination of some sort, for example, during reproduction or during horizontal gene exchange in bacteria. And so recombination may affect mutation evolution in most natural populations and potentially provide an explanation for why we don't see high mutation rates in nature. Now, we've been looking at this for a few decades. Is there experimental evidence that recombination is responsible for lowering the mutation rate? Well, not so much, right? There's been a lot of theoretical work on the subject, but not a lot of experiments that explored the effect of recombination mutation revolution. And in our review, we suggest some future directions for experimenters to take in exploring the role of recombination in mutation revolution. How exactly would you go about really nailing down the effects of recombination in an experiment? We are particularly interested in how much recombination is necessary to inhibit mutator hitchhiking. We believe that the amount of recombination that is necessary to inhibit hitchhiking will depend critically on the rate and effect of beneficial mutations, basically on selection in favor of mutators. For example, in well-adapted populations in which beneficial mutations are rare or potentially a small effect, even small amounts of recombination we expect to inhibit mutated hitchhiking. However, in poorly adapted populations in which beneficial mutations are potentially common, we suspect that rare recombination may no longer be sufficient. So we're hoping to explore this relationship between the rate of recombination or the amount of recombination and selection in favor of mutators in experimental populations with recombination. And we're particularly focused on 
bacterial populations that engage in horizontal gene transfer, and we're also continuing our earlier work on sexual populations of yeast. How else do you suppose the mutation rate might be lowered? The other potential explanation for the low prevalence of mutators in nature is selection against the deleterious load associated with the mutator. So it's well accepted that most fitness-affecting mutations are deleterious, and since mutators increase the influx of both beneficial and deleterious mutations, while they do benefit from beneficial mutations, they actually may experience a rather effective selection due to linked deleterious mutations. And in terms of selection on the mutation rate modifiers themselves, are they thought to be selectively neutral? Well, yes, it's been generally assumed that mutation rate modifiers themselves are neutral, but there's really not much empirical evidence that they really are. And this is another potential direction of future research that we suggest in our review to actually try to measure intrinsic fitness effects of mutation rate modifiers and see if they could potentially affect selection of mutation rates. That was Yevgeny Rains. Our next story this month is about the elusive Atlantic eels. Speciation in oceanic environments can be a bit tricky to understand because of the lack of obvious physical barriers to gene flow to get it started. On the continents, there are rivers and mountain ranges, but in the oceans, closely related species share no such boundaries. The European and the American Atlantic eels voyaged to spawn in the Sargasso Sea, slap bang in the middle of the Atlantic, from the American and European continents respectively. Magnus Wolf Jacobson from Aarhus University in Denmark and his team were interested in when these species diverged and what factors of the marine environment allowed their speciation to get started. Here's Magnus. They're actually really fascinating species. They live and like grow up in the continent, so in freshwater bodies or in the coastal areas. And then after 5 to 20 years, they migrate all the way to the Sargasso Sea, situated in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And here they spawn in what we call terminal fronts, so fronts between cold and warm water. Then afterwards they actually die. Then subsequently, when the larvae hatch, then they drift back to the ocean, uh, relying on mainly the Gulf current. So the American eel would transport back to the American continent and the European eel back to the European continent and complete the life cycle. And these species spawn then in the same area in the Sargasso Sea, so we, we would call that impartial sympatry. Yes, but um, although there's an overlap both in time and space, it still seems like the European eel it will uh, spawn mostly in the eastern part of the Sargasso Sea, or the American eel would spawn mostly in the western part of the Sargasso Sea. And also in time, it seems that the European eel spawn a bit later, but it still is an overlap, and actually hybridization, it can occur, and it also it does occur. But for some weird reason, uh, the hybrids mainly end up on Iceland, and only a few hybrids on the, on the main continents. And what hypotheses do we have for how the marine environment caused the divergence of these species? If you have an ancestral species only across one of the continents, then um, if you reimagine that at some point, uh, ocean currents that change, so maybe some of these eelava, they actually drift all the way back to the other continent. And with these uh, eelava grow up, so into adult eels and migrate back to the Sargasso Sea, maybe they'll find suitable spawning grounds in the periphery of the old spawning ground, so that will establish some kind of isolation barrier. There'll be a shortage of mating. So that is one hypothesis. And the other is that maybe during the Pleistocene, so during this big period we had with all the glaciations, 
then due to these glaciations, most of the northern Europe and also North America have, have been covered of ice. So the distribution range we know today of the two eel species have been much, much smaller. So maybe there's been fewer eels also. If there's been fewer eels, although there's only one population to begin with, then fewer eels from Europe might have uh, made it to the Sagasso Sea, fewer eels for, um, from America have made it to the Sagasso Sea, which then could have kind of led to a, a diminished overlap in the, in the spawning region, and thereby allowing for uh, reproductive isolation. Okay, so you really set out in this paper to distinguish between those two kind of speciation scenarios and also to get a more accurate estimate of when these species diverged. Yes, um, and that's true. And actually, there have been um, several papers before us tried to look into the divergence between the two species. But um, all of them have used kind of um, questionable ways to, to calibrate mutation time, to calibrate divergence between the species. So some papers have used standard mutation rates, which nowadays is uh, considered at least potentially biased, simply because different organisms would have different mutation rates due to differences in biology. And uh, other papers have calibrated time using different uh, migration routes that is not established yet. And what sort of genetic data did you collect? So we uh, sequenced around 50 mitochondrial genomes from each species. And then we, because today we know actually much more about the phylogenetic relationships to other species, then we know the most closely related eel species to the freshwater eels. So we could then apply a calibration point of the oldest fossils we found on freshwater eels to then estimate divergence between the species. How long ago did your study suggest these species diverged? That is quite interesting. So our study suggested they diverged around 3.38 million years ago. And that is different from other estimates, which either found estimates around 1.5 million years or, or much older than we found. But interestingly, when we look into what actually happened there these uh, 3.38 million years ago, it's, it's kind of in the same time as when the Panama Gateway closed. And uh, when the Panama Gateway closed, it was this uh, kind of open area that connected the Atlantic Ocean with the Pacific Ocean. When this uh, gateway closed, then the Gulf current increased in strength. So that fit well with this uh, first scenario I talked about where ocean currents might have simply been advecting Ilava from one continent into the other continent, and then speciation could initiate. And if we look into the kind of major phylogeny of the freshwater eels, we also see that um, the closest sister species to the Atlantic eels is uh, eels in New Zealand and Australia. And that had made people before us to propose that maybe the ancestor of the Atlantic eels actually they migrated over the Pacific and into the Atlantic Ocean via this uh, Panama Gateway. And if that is actually true, then it makes good sense that we have a, an ancestral species inhabiting the American continent. And then when the Panama Gateway closed and the Gulf current got stronger, then some e-lava could have been invaded to Europe. And then in that way, speciation could have been initiated. Does the European species look like the derived species? So that's a good question. Um, and we tried to look into this, actually. According to this scenario, then the European eel would be the derived species. And we would put on different kind of hypothesis of what we would expect to see if that was the case. First of all, if the European eel was a derived species, then we would expect that it would show a lower nucleotide diversity simply because of it had been founded from the other species. Or maybe that we would find stronger patterns of selection within the European species simply because it would inhabit a new environment where there would be new selection pressures. When we look into this, we cannot really establish this uh, from this data. Um, Actually, it seems like the American eels show less nucleotide diversity. But we also now we are dealing with this really long time scale, 3.3 million years. 
So maybe uh, what we see is actually more kind of a reason estimate for nuclear diversity, simply because of, 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 of reason differences in demography. Was there evidence of positive selection on those mitochondrial genes? We found some evidence for selection. This was especially in the ATP6 gene. It has been shown before, actually, that it, it might be under selection. We also tried to see whether or not there was selection going on across the different species of freshwater eels. And we actually find one codon, codon 52, that seems to be under selection across the phylogeny. So meaning that ATP6 actually could be of importance, both in um, speciation between the two Atlantic species of eels, but also kind of more generally uh, between the freshwater eels in general. And have you any idea what that gene is actually being selected for? Yes, so all the genes actually within the mitochondrial genome, they have a function for uh, ATP production, so energy production. So selection in ATP6 must be related to some kind of selection on energy. And if you look at the freshwater eels in general, and in the two Atlantic species in particular, then you see that they have or show a lot of differences in the distance they migrate to reach the spawning grounds. So the European eel fences migrate up to at least 6,000 kilometers to reach the Sargasso Sea, while the American eel only migrate around 2,500 kilometers. So there's a really big difference there, and um, that must, in some extent, relate to energy requirements. So it makes a lot of sense, actually, that there seems to be selection in, uh, in genes that relates to energy. But then the other hypothesis that you mentioned was that of the reduced population sizes during the glaciations. You also looked into that as well, didn't you? Yes, we looked into this using some coalescent-based methods called the uh, Bayesian Skyline Plot Methods that allows you to estimate population size changes back in time. When we did that, we saw a decrease in both species around either the last or the previous glaciations, so meaning that the glaciations probably had an effect on the population sizes that again could lead into a diminished overlap at the spawning grounds. So from this study, it seems like maybe speciation actually initiated around these 3.38 million years ago, probably due to uh, an increased strength of the Gulf current, but then maybe later on have been reinforced by differences in the population sizes at the two different continents. Now, do you think this study tells us anything about speciation in general in other marine organisms? What has been stated before is that maybe ocean currents could have been a part of establishing physical barriers to gene flow and thereby be important for speciation in in the oceanic environment, but normally we know so little about uh, these ocean currents, when they have shifted, when they have changed. So it's difficult to kind of find support for these hypotheses. But here we find um, this really good correlation with the closure of the Panama Gateway, so at least showing that uh, ocean currents might be important in the ocean environment. What does this make you think about the future of speciation with regards to changing currents because of climate change? That is a really good question, and that might definitely have some effect. The difficulties we face here that we know so little about how climate change will affect ocean currents and the environment in general. That is something we'll probably hear more about in the future, I guess. That was Magnus Wolf Jacobson. And that's it for this episode. Join us again next month for another edition of the Heredity Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 